Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. All right, welcome in Cube Show Podcast. Going to review what happened over the weekend inside the SEC. What a weekend it was. Whew. I was in Starkville, Mississippi. Pretty emotional, pretty cool game to be a part of that with Carnell Williams, his first game as head coach of the Auburn Tigers. That was that was pretty special. Um, if you missed that, if you missed that pregame interview, go check it out. Uh, the Auburn football account tweeted it out. I retweeted it at Cole Cube. Like you can check us out there. Uh, the account for this show is at Cube Show. You can always follow us there and check in. Listen, we've talked about this show last time. If you missed it, we're going to try to give you the SEC weekend that was in review, not talk about how popular we are, how many people listen, not try to go into how cool we are because of what people say about us. We just want to give you straight ball, what I saw, what I liked, what I didn't like, and maybe some of the how and why of things that took place over the weekend. We'll start with that game in Auburn since that's where I was. Um, a team that really just showed up with different energy. I, I thought a team that showed up and played um, played a little bit harder than maybe they had in the past. And I didn't think the team had really quit on Brian Harson. I didn't think that they weren't playing for him, but – we saw different guys show up and do different things. Jeffrey Emba showed up defensively. I thought he had a nice game up front on the defensive line. We saw some different linebackers play. Uh, Barton Lester got in and played a little bit. Um, Desmond Tisdale got in and played a little bit. You know, So different guys, maybe this coaching staff saying, all right, if you're not going to do it the way we want, we're going to give different people a chance to come in and make some plays. I thought Derek Hall had a, an amazing game. I thought he played like his hair was on fire. Back off the ball, one-on-one in space, making tackles. He was great. Pass rush situations, fantastic. Playing against the run, he was wonderful. Uh, He kind of set the tone for that defense, and they got after Will Rogers after a really poor start. Will Rogers, boom, 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 up and down the field. Looks like this game's going to get ugly, and he's super accurate. He's hitting passes. They're running the ball, and the next thing you know, the rain keeps coming down. I think that weather maybe hindered that offense just a little bit. And Auburn finds a way to get back in it. Robbie Ashford was incredible with his legs. I thought Will Friend did a good job adding extra tight ends, widening the surface a little bit, and then allowing that run game to get going. Auburn got a couple of breaks. Defense got some big stops. I was okay with the aggressive play call from Carnell early on. I thought he went in and said, hey, we got nothing to lose. We're going to go for it on fourth down. Would I have kicked the field goal there? Probably. But yeah. You go out there and you're trying to win a football game. You want your guys to stay motivated, stay into it. I get it. I understand. Nonetheless, Mississippi State finds a way to battle back, get into that game, come back in overtime and win it. The kickoff off the Auburn player, I don't think that was intentional because why would you risk them fielding the football there around midfield and then having possession there when you need the ball back to be able to go down and score? So I, I don't I don't think that was I don't think that was intentional. I think it was a squib that just happened to go their way. But Mike Leach's club finds a way to battle back at home, get an SEC win, and Mississippi State gets to six and three. Auburn goes to three and six, just one and five in the SEC. They get Texas AM this weekend. Whoa. As if Texas A&M needed any more problems, needed anything else to happen, anything else to go wrong, 
Now they have this flu bug that hits the team. Connor Wigman's out, a couple other starters out. You look at what they are from what they were game one starting lineup to what they are now, and it is just totally different for Texas A&M. Haynes King back in. He does some decent things, but in reality, Haynes King's just not the answer at quarterback. I don't think he's a guy that's going to be dynamic. He's not going to help you push the ball down the field. He's not going to come up with big plays. Can he manage and execute the offense to a certain extent? Sure. Um, and when you got Muhammad stepping up, making plays, Evan Stewart making plays, and A-Chain running the way that he was, that might be okay, minus the turnovers that hit Texas A&M. That can't happen. And then for the second consecutive week, just could not fit the run. Um, it, to me, it's... You've got a young, talented defensive line, and it's understandable that they're going to be a group of guys that are going to be out of place at times. That's why when we had them against South Carolina a couple of weeks ago, we talked about gap scheme runs, getting too far upfield, squeezing too far down, not necessarily playing it the right way. And that's been an issue for them. Uh, More zone scheme from Montreal Johnson and company from Florida. Uh, They really got after that front, pushed them around a little bit, displaced them some. And I just love the way that that Montreal Johnson runs. I mean, the the guy coming over from Louisiana has has just been exceptional as a transfer back. And, you know, Billy told us a couple weeks ago when we had him, he said, we don't really have a bunch of home run hitters, but we got a guy, a lot of guys that can hit a lot of doubles. If Montreal Johnson gives you those kind of doubles week in, week out, I got, I take them and I wouldn't need a whole lot else. Now, ETN does offer a little bit more of a home run threat, but this is a team that's going to grind things out right now. Uh, I thought Richardson made some nice throws, did some nice things, not super consistent, but he got a couple of burns with his legs, got a couple of touchdowns with his legs. Ricky Pearsall stepping up. I think this Florida offense just needs more tight ends and they need Anthony Richardson to continue to develop as a quarterback, get more comfortable in that system, more comfortable in that scheme have a better understanding of just how to operate it. And when he does, I think he can be special. We know the talent's there. We know the ability's there. But just him on an every-down basis of being able to run and manage that offense is what that team's going to need. Defensively, still just not fitting it up very well. And you kick off Brendan Cox Jr., and you understand that the edge is going to be a little bit different there. I thought 33 had a nice game off the edge for the Florida defense. You know, Ventrell Miller last week wasn't great. Uh, the linebackers just don't really seem to have an understanding of exactly where to be, what to do. Um, you know, I thought Ventrell was okay in this game. I thought Trey Dean the third had a pretty good game, but they're just not on the same page as far as how things need to be fit up and where to be in order to get yourself in the best position to be able to make tackles. Nonetheless, all that being said, Florida gets a nice win, and Florida's a team now that's above 500. Texas A&M goes to three and six. They'll travel to Auburn next weekend. My crew is going to be on that game. Excited about that one. Just to be on the planes. Carnell Williams, uh, game two as the interim head football coach. And Jimbo Fisher trying to stop a five-game losing skid. I will say this. I don't think that I've ever seen or been a part of a conference game in the Power Five with two teams that have lost five straight. They're going to be facing off against one another. That is unheard of, in my opinion. But that's what we're going to have next Saturday night. All right, so another team that really disappointed yesterday was Arkansas. They go to five and four on the season, and they lose to Liberty. Now, Hugh Freeze has Liberty at eight and one. Let's be real. Hugh Freeze probably looks at this as um, a little bit of a a way to go out and promote himself, maybe for the Auburn job or any other SEC job, just showing that he can get wins in this league. I thought he coached a heck of a game, but I thought where they really won this game was on defense. And this is a defense that gives you a lot of different looks. They'll have all their players standing up. 
They're going to give you run stunts where one guy's slanting in, another's looping around. They're going to pressure you from depth. So whether that's safeties, linebackers, alley defenders lined up over the slot. And they did all that to Arkansas, and Arkansas did not handle it very well. What's usually your answer for all of that? It's to get north and south and go right at it. That way, all the commotion ends up working against whoever's trying to run it. And I thought with Rocket Sanders and the ability from K.J. Jefferson to be a power runner that you just go north and south right at that group. And Arkansas didn't do it. I thought they lived on the perimeter a little bit too much. I thought some of the elongated pass plays in protection with RPOs and fakes and long fakes where Jefferson's going to be in the pocket allowed some of that pressure to be able to get there. And they just consistently couldn't get it going. 14 tackles for loss for Liberty in this game. It's way too much. And just didn't think the plan was one that gave them the best chance to go out there and be successful. You know, defensively, I don't, I don't think it was a miserable game for Arkansas's defense. They were just put in a bad spot early and weren't going to be able to find a way to overcome what the offense couldn't do. That's an ugly loss. I don't, I don't know another way to say it. They did not handle their business and one that uh, is probably not going to be viewed very well in Fayetteville. Um, so we'll move on to uh, South Carolina and Vanderbilt quickly. Took a quick peek at this game today. Uh, the one thing that I really do like about Vanderbilt is the effort is not dead. The effort is not gone. I love the way Ray Davis runs the football. Um, he's a guy that just, you feel he runs with passion and he's a guy that understands it. Um, I thought South Carolina did a nice job moving Antoine Wells Jr. around. Juice had a really nice game. They used him in different ways. Um, and obviously no Marshawn Lloyd in this game, but you had to find other ways to get it done. And they were able to do that. Offensive line was okay. Spencer Rattler was efficient. Still not enough down the field for Spencer Rattler. I thought the South Carolina wide receivers had a really nice game. They did something with reverses and end arounds. So really, I think just trying to, one, make the Vanderbilt defense run east and west. Two, visually deceive that defense where some things would open up in the run game. And it worked. Coach Satterfield had a nice plan going in. They didn't get exotic, but they kind of made it look different with different personnel in different places, and they were able to gain some yards and do some different things that way. So I thought it was a nice plan for Vanderbilt. A.J. Swan under pressure too much in this game. Uh, I think A.J. Swan can be a good quarterback in the SEC. I think he's got good touch. I think he throws a good ball. I think he has good anticipation. But when he's got guys in his face nonstop, he's not going to be able to go out and be a successful quarterback, and he doesn't have a plethora of weapons. He has some guys that can be reliable, but he doesn't have that many that he can go in and rely on down in, down out. They've got to find a way to protect him with the extra tight ends. Gavin Showalter and company, you think they'd be able to do that, but they just haven't found it, and they definitely didn't find it in this game. That South Carolina front continues to be a team or a group on that team that plays pretty good football. Um, a weird one Saturday morning was Kentucky and Missouri. Um, watch this one in the hotel room. Um, we ate walk-ons for lunch on Saturday. I drove over Saturday morning. Tom went over late Saturday night. Obviously, Jordan flies in. Uh, so we didn't really hang out in Starkville very much. I had two games last week. Um, so I was up in Mac country on Wednesday. So just trying to get a little bit of a breather before I went over and did a, a Auburn and Mississippi State. Um, so just didn't really hang out. Not a lot to tell you about being around the town. I will say this though, um, cause we already did our, Auburn to Mississippi state Davis Wade was great. Uh, the environment was loud. Obviously the cowbells were clanging. And even though with the rain and a, an opponent coming in that didn't have a great record, I thought the crowd really showed up and really showed out and made it a fun environment. And I think they helped Mississippi State be able to get back in that game and then potentially win that game because there were some penalties on Auburn across the course of that game that I think the crowd had a little bit of a hand in. Um, but back to uh, Kentucky and Missouri, this was just kind of a uh, 
Kind of an ugly game. Missouri seems to find a way to get people in these ugly games this year. Look at what the Auburn game was. Look at what the Georgia game was. Now look at this game. Like They just have a way of sort of making you play a fist fight style of football game. Uh, Not a lot of explosive plays from Missouri. Uh, I think that was one of their big problems. Brady Cook's got to hold on to the football. He's got to protect the football. Uh, He does a good job breaking defenses down with his legs occasionally and spitting it to his playmakers in a hurry. But if you have a defense like Kentucky playing Ben, but don't break, that's probably not going to be enough. Um, you know, Luther Burden and company need to touch the football quickly, but they also need their shot plays down the field. And I didn't feel like there were enough of those. And on the flip side of that, I thought the Missouri defensive line just balled out. The, that group has been playing great all season. Uh, they have been in opponent's backfield. They have offered a pass rush. They have disrupted against the run. And Blake Baker, from a schematic standpoint, I thought also had a really nice game plan. He mixed and matched a lot of the different looks that Kentucky saw in this game. You saw both linebackers walked up in the A-gaps with two defensive ends. Defensive ends crash in. Linebackers loop around. Kind of like a double twist with linebackers and ends on both sides. It was end up getting home. There were a lot of different looks, different pressures that Blake Baker threw at this defense, and he has completely changed what this defense is. He got a contract extension last week. That is well-deserved. I think Eli deserves another year, and I think if he gets that year, especially retaining Blake Baker, you're going to see this team be very different next year than it is this year because they've been really close in a lot of games, and I just wouldn't get too down on what Missouri is or what they have done now at 4-5 and on the year. Chris Rodriguez did get going a little bit on the ground, though. Will Levis got off to a nice start, and I think that hot start really helped Kentucky be in a good position for the rest of the game because Missouri tried to battle back, and then Will Levis got a little bit inconsistent. Some of that with the pressure, some of that with guys being able to get into the backfield, hit him, change his direction, change his arm angles, things of that nature, but it wasn't a real consistent performance across the board for Kentucky offensively. And then you get to the end of the game. And I'm going to be real with you guys. I've never seen this. I've never seen a situation where a snap goes over a punter's head and he runs 20 yards backwards, picks it up, attempts to kick it, gets hit, and that's actually roughing the punter because he technically stayed in the tackle box, which I guess just goes forever. I guess the tackle box just continues for infinity and beyond. I I don't. I don't know if I've ever seen a play end up this way, but Colin Goodfellow is the player of the game for Kentucky. And you guys know, I don't usually say that about people who punt the football for a living, but he scoops it up, gets a kickoff. They get the penalty. They stay alive. And obviously they're able to hold on and go get a win. Um, Just kind of a, a blue collar, grind it out, figure out a way to win game for Mark Stoops and Kentucky. So I give them credit. They had not been real successful on the road recently, and they're able to go on the road in the SEC and get that win. Keep in mind what Kirby Smart told me after the Georgia game in that stadium right there in Columbia, Missouri. Man, it's hard to win on the road in this league. It doesn't matter how good you are, how good they are, where it is, where it's not. You go on the road in this league, it is going to be tough. And Missouri proved that to Kentucky again. All right, let's get to the big ones. Tennessee and Georgia. Coming into this game, I I didn't really see Tennessee's offense being slowed down. I was really interested to see what Georgia's offense would be able to do because I thought the Tennessee defense had been a little bit masked based on the style of play and based on where some opponents were in different games. And number one, Georgia had a fantastic plan for the Tennessee offense. Number two, Georgia had a fantastic plan for the Tennessee defense. Stetson Bennett 
he kind of cut down the high risk throws that he had been attempting over the last few weeks. And I was a little concerned with him coming into this game thinking, all right, if he's going to continue to try to squeeze balls in, this is not going to work against this team or this defense because they'll find a way to put up points. I thought he took care of the ball a little bit better. I thought he was a little more responsible. You saw him directing traffic at the line of scrimmage for four quarters. He had an understanding of what to get into and where to get the ball. And I think where Georgia is most dangerous offensively are all the different places that they can go. Because now you had a couple wide receivers hurt you down the field, stretch the field, one-on-one 50-50 balls, and they proved that your safeties are not just going to be able to creep up, play the run or double or bracket tight ends. Can still feed it to Washington, can still feed it to Bowers, and at the same time, you have a back and McIntosh who can catch the ball out of the backfield. I thought the Georgia backs ran well. Got to hold on to the football, though. Fumbles have been one consistent issue with this team for a lot of this season, and they don't lose them all, but they got to clean that up when you're talking about getting into the postseason. But they can spread it all over the place. Multiple tight ends, multiple backs, and now multiple receivers that look like they can hurt you down the field. Um, Rosemary St. Jackson, I thought he had a pretty good game. McConkie obviously has the deep touchdown pass, and Stetson Bennett was just working that offense. He knows where to get it. He's super confident. Like I said, against Florida, I thought he was maybe a little too confident. There are a couple of balls even the week before that could have been picked off that weren't, but he limited those kind of throws and really managed that offense well. Um, on the other side, it w- also quickly, George's offensive line played great. Uh, probably best center in the SEC. Thought Broderick Jones was great at it. Tackle again. And Darnell, Darnell Washington is basically another tackle. I mean, he is. We're, we're working at the line of scrimmage, working out in space in the screen game or in a toss game. I mean, he is fantastic out there just demolishing DBs and getting moving at the point of attack. So you you are looking at 6'7", 285 pounds, basically an extra offensive tackle that's lining up to you a lot of times. It's going to give you a big size advantage. And I thought Georgia came into this game and imposed their will. And they did it on the other side of the ball. Jalen Carter and company were, at, were fantastic. Bear Alexander, fantastic up front. Again, second straight game I've seen him make plays and do some good things. And you knew you were going to be down Nolan Smith, so different guys are going to have to step up and be able to make plays. And I thought Kirby and company did a good job of just saying, all right, you know, we'll let you work underneath. It's fine. We have no problem. Uh, death by a thousand cuts. We'll allow it. We'll take it. We'll play man on top of that. And we don't think that you can be as successful there. And Tennessee wasn't. And the thing that people forget about the deep shots with Tennessee is, one, they're usually off play action, so the run game has to get going. Georgia won with fewer in the box. They were able to win with four and five in the box consistently, and that's going to stymie that Tennessee offense maybe as much as anything else. And then when you play man and you can reroute and you can force those wide receivers timing to be off a little bit, it is going to give you a massive advantage. I thought Georgia was able to do both. Then they applied pressure on top of all that. They made sure that the quarterback runs didn't get loose, and it was just a fantastic day all the way around. Ten and company at linebacker, I thought, played really well. The thing about Georgia's defense, top to bottom, whether it's safeties rolling down in the box in a hurry, linebackers fitting up in the run, or defensive linemen pursuing or penetrating, whatever that is, they friggin' tackle. Bottom line, Georgia tackles well. And they're, they're going to have to do it again this week because against Mississippi State, I think that's the number one attribute you have to have if you're going to beat them or slow them down offensively. You have to get the ball carriers to the ground. I know it sounds simple. It sounds elementary. It sounds easy. But it's just the reality when you're facing football teams like those who distribute the ball quickly and have playmakers that get into space. Fantastic plan by Kirby and company. 
Fantastic execution by their guys, especially on defense. I thought they brought the fight to both sides of the ball, and I'm not sure that punch in the mouth was welcomed by Tennessee. They weren't quite ready for it. Couldn't get the run going, did not protect well, and if you're going to get shot plays, they take time to develop, and Tennessee didn't have that time to be able to get them going. I do think Tennessee's D-line put up a decent fight at times. It's not like Georgia just ground out 300 yards on the ground. Uh, I do think a lot of the run success was on the perimeter, and a lot of it was in which the ways that they moved the football and had bonus bigs inside the lineup. But you see 95 and 21, they still active inside, still making some plays. I thought 33 banks had a pretty good game for that Tennessee defense, but all in all, just wasn't enough. Tennessee's not out of it. Still have a shot, but Georgia proved they're the number one team in the nation. And they're the team that we should be talking about first when we're talking about the college football playoff. Finally, that takes us to a team that a lot of folks think is out of the college football playoff, and that's out of, that's Alabama. Uh, seven and two on the season, as is LSU, who's now in the driver's seat in the West as they take out Alabama 32-31 in overtime. These two teams have played five overtime games all time. That's more than any two college football teams in the history of the sport ever. Gives you an idea just how competitive these games are, how fun these games are. A lot of times. So let's get into exactly what I saw, how it went down, what it was, and what happened. So when I go back and I look at this film, the first thing that I see is an Alabama offensive line that just did not play great football. Um, 99 and 92 are having a great year for LSU inside. I thought they had a good game here. BJ Lozari off the edge, Ali Gay off the edge. Uh, both affected the game and both did different things. Uh, the difference in this game, though, was number 40, Harold Perkins. And when he operated as a spy, as soon as Bryce Young got out of the tackle box, he was like a laser beam attached to him and he would go attack immediately. And he made Bryce Young uncomfortable, uh, made it problematic for him to do some of the things that he does best, which is move outside the pocket, keep his eyes downfield, find different things, and be able to go create. He didn't allow those things to take place. I thought it was a really nice plan by Matt House, LSU's defensive coordinator. He understood I can win up front with four, and I have a guy who can who's actually fast enough and athletic enough to go spy this quarterback. It's kind of like when we were talking about um, – in that Auburn Mississippi state game. And, you know, we, we talked about, all right, what are you going to be able to do against a mobile quarterback? And Zach Arnett said, listen, you know, I, I, I can play man free and get a spy. If I play, you know, too high, I'm not going to be able to spy, but I, I don't have a guy who can spy Robbie Ashford. So why would I waste a man? I don't think I have someone who can run him down and be that successful doing that. So Kind of a similar deal with Bryce Young in a lot of the other games we've seen him in. Who has someone that athletic, that fast, that instinctual that can be able to do it? LSU showed that they did and made Alabama pay for it. The other part is Alabama receivers just not separating. I mean, there's a lot of plays when Bryce either decides to leave the pocket, has to leave the pocket, or gets to the back of his drop, and you can pause it, and there's nobody open. So you can be mad about Jameer Gibbs catching a bunch of those dart routes or catching a bunch of those flare routes, and the bottom line is there's nobody else open. I mean, Kim Latu found a way to create some space, catches a couple of balls. You know, There was some intermediate stuff that was there, but if you're talking about devastating routes, like gut punch routes down the field, you know, explosive play routes. There's just not a lot of receivers that create space for Alabama right now. And that's a big, big problem. Um, I thought Jameer Gibbs was excellent, whether it was carrying the football, finding ways to create and make space on his own, dancing, bouncing outside, or catching the ball outside the pocket and being able to create there. Without Jameer Gibbs, I don't know where that team was yesterday. 
I really don't. And trust me, the one interception that Bryce Young threw, by the way, I thought it may have been the most ridiculous pass of the, of, of the night. The way that he kind of turned and signed on it through two defenders. I don't even know how he got it off. But at the same time, you know, he's you have to give Bryce credit for a lot of things that he keeps alive and a lot of things that he does. Um, Alabama's in a tough spot without him, but I think they would have been in a really tough spot without Jameer Gibbs yesterday as well. Um, and then on the flip side of that, you go look at Alabama and, and the Alabama offensive line wasn't great and they're not great in protection. I thought their tackles looked confused at times. They got some run stunts and they got some, some different pressures out over the edge. And I did not think they looked comfortable handling some of the things that they saw with LSU's offense. It just continues under coach Kelly and coach Denbrock doing the things that we've talked about up to this point. They have done an excellent job of just saying, okay, we have a quarterback that needs to get through things quickly. He's not going to get to read four or five very much of the time. So let's just get the ball out. Let's let him understand exactly what it is, where it's going. And if it's not there, tuck it and run. And then they added some of the East and West motion, some of the jet read off this where he can give it, he can keep it, or they would sprint him out kind of with a jet coming with that. And he's got the option to hit that or just tuck it and run North and South. You saw that one a couple of times where he kind of reads that jet and then he can follow it out and kind of roll with it, or he gets north and south. And when that defensive end would follow outside with that jet motion, boom, Jaden Daniels would get upfield. Also broke down that pass rush a few times. People want to be mad at Pete Golding in this defense and say how bad it is. If you really go back and watch it, they were in the backfield often. I mean, Dallas Turner was in the backfield. Byron Young was in the backfield. Will Anderson was in the backfield. Now, they didn't get the quarterback to the ground, and that's a problem. That can't happen. That's something that must happen. But they affected the pocket. And that's what Coach Saban talks about all the time. We've heard him for years say it's not just about sacks. It's about affecting the pocket. So then you go back to rush lane integrity. Was that where it needed to be? No, not all the time. A couple of guys freelancing every now and then. And that's something that probably worked against Alabama. And then on top of that, where are your second level defenders after Jaden Daniels was breaking things down? And were they getting there fast enough to be able to make plays? No, not necessarily. So I think those were some of the things that were going wrong. And for LSU, it, you know, a lot of those rushing yards did from the come from the quarterback leaving the pocket. So it wasn't just turn hand off and then demolish. Uh, but what they did in the passing game from an intermediate perspective, setting some different things up. I mean, there weren't a lot of big balls down the field. I think the longest pass play of the night was 30 yards for LSU. So they understood that they could sort of chip away and they were fine doing that because probably understanding that we don't think we're going to give up explosive plays to that Alabama offense. So it was a great plan on both sides for LSU to go in and attack it the way that they did and be as patient as they were. And I think with a lot of coordinators across the league yesterday, I saw great patience and a lack of patience, either help or get your team in trouble. It happened a bunch. I go back to that Auburn offense, patience there. You know, Will Friend told me before the game, Cole, we might run the ball 60 times. You know, we will run the football. You had an offensive line coach who was calling plays. You had a former running back as the head coach. Like they were going to go ground and pound, and they did. I actually think that they should have done it more. Because for me, a lot of those fourth down and third downs, I just go five wide and tell Robbie to find some space and run the football because that's where Auburn was most dangerous. But they stuck with it and they were patient with it. Um, you, know, you also, you look at 
You look at Kentucky, like we talked about, they didn't get greedy. It was a tight game. It was, it was a game that, yeah, you would have liked to gone out and try to force something in and slam the door and not have to worry about it, but they stuck with their plan. So patience and lack of patience is something that I watch each and every week. And I see either helping teams stay in games or go win games or getting teams in trouble. And they're not able to find a way to win. But I thought the LSU offense was planned well, executed well, didn't try to do too much, understood what you had, try to grind some yards out every now and then, and they just traded punches with Alabama late. And then Brian Kelly, what else can you say? I mean, he decides to roll out there, two-point conversion in the first overtime, and be able to shut that thing down. Mason Taylor, excellent catch, excellent route. And here's the cool thing about Mason Taylor. He was not... He's he's a great inline blocker and he's willing to be an inline blocker. I thought he helped him a lot in the run game and he caught a couple other passes other than that one. So they're finding different guys to help him in different ways. And that's what's making LSU extremely difficult to defend. And they're not going to be a lot of fun to play for the rest of the way through. Now LSU controls their own destiny. LSU is a team that if they win out, they're in the SEC championship game at Arkansas next UAB. And then at AM. What's that AM team going to look like last week of the season? I have no idea. It'll be talented. But remember, before the season started, if you listen to Macro and Cubic in the morning and you heard us talking about it, we tried to tell you outside of Georgia and Alabama, LSU was the most talented roster in the SEC. It wasn't Texas AM, it wasn't Arkansas, it wasn't Ole Miss, it was LSU. And what Brian Kelly has done, in my opinion, a lot of folks just think that, oh, they've gotten better and better and better and better and better and better and better. I don't really believe that. I think that, yes, they've improved and yes, they've gotten better, but that's not the only reason for what's happening. I think Coach Dimbrock, Coach House, Coach Kelly have done an excellent job of essentially moving the chess pieces around or finding the right pieces to the puzzle and then being able to put them together. They just have learned about themselves. They've found out what they are and who they are, and they stayed within that to be able to go out and be successful. So it's been pretty impressive to see with a couple of guys that looked like they might be checked out early, a couple of transfers that they were going to have to lean on, some guys that were either injured or not eligible or suspended early that are now helping and playing a bunch. I mean, you look at, like, look at the rushing attack. Who thought Josh Williams would be such a big part of what this offense is? And he's not super dynamic. He's not going to give you Leonard Fournette numbers, but man, he helps a bunch. And when we talked to them earlier in the year, you know, they sat back and they told us, hey, this is a guy that does everything the way that it needs to be done. This is a guy that does everything that we ask him to do the right way. So he will help us this year. And now you're seeing that play out. So, man, what a wild weekend in the SEC. And think about what it sets up for next weekend. Uh, it's like it just does not slow down from here on out. Um, you know, LSU, like I mentioned, is at Arkansas. The Alabama's at Ole Miss. That one's going to be bananas. Um, Georgia going to Mississippi State, I think, is going to be a lot of fun. And like I said before, I don't think I've ever seen two teams on five-game losing streaks. Texas A&M travels to Auburn. My crew going to be on that game. Looking forward to that one. Uh, we had fun doing the one in Starkville this weekend. Um, had some fun with Coach Leach before the game, talking to him. And I'll say this. Um, once again, you know, seeing – Talking to Cornell Williams during the week and having the conversation with him about how Rich McGlynn came in and told him he was going to be the interim. I talked to Rich before the game too, and he told me that they had a. So he he texted Cornell or somebody texted Cornell and said you need to be in the president's office at eight a.m. tomorrow morning. The president of the university and Rich asked him, did you did did you tell him what it was about? And they said no. So he immediately said, hey, everything's okay. It's all good. Like, can you imagine? 
Like somebody tells you you got a meeting in the president's office. I know my mind would immediately go to, all right, something bad's happening here. Um, but you had a little bit of a makeshift staff there for Auburn. Kendall Simmons moves in to coach the offensive line. Carnell now the head coach. Um, you had Will Friend go up in the booth and call plays. I Killiard helped him call plays. Uh, Friend was going to be in the booth. Then he ended up being on the field calling those plays. And seeing just the energy of the kids, seeing how hard they played, it was just impressive. And, you know, they didn't win the game, but I think they show people a lot about the kind of fight that they have, the resiliency that they have. And it wasn't a clean first half. And Carnell told me at halftime, we will not fight. We will not quit. We will get back in this game and we will play Auburn football. And they were able to do that. So to be on that broadcast, to be a part of it with how emotional he got in the open, how emotional he got with us during the week. And he told us, listen, my main thing is I don't want this to be about me. That's it. I do not want this to be about me. I want it to be about the kids. I want this to be about the players. I want them to have fun. I want them to have energy. I want them to be able to enjoy this. And I want to give them something to play for. And they need to understand that Auburn University is enough to play for. His message was fantastic. It's exactly what you would want to hear from somebody in that position. And I don't think we hear it enough. And I think because he's approached it that way, and I think because Carnell Williams has approached the assistant coaches that way, they will avoid a lot of the guys approaching the rest of the season with one foot out the door, which I have experienced firsthand and my teammates experienced firsthand. And I know a lot of other college football players that had their coach fired at midseason. They also experienced that. So you might not get a lack of development, a lack of film, a lack of teaching and coaching down the stretch that normally would have been missed with part of a staff being dismissed and not sticking around to coach for the rest of the season. So a fun, fun weekend of SEC football. The Auburn coaching search is still ongoing. Uh, the regular names are there. We've talked about Lane Kiffin. I personally don't think Matt Rule is going to be in that mix. Hugh Freeze with that win against Arkansas. His name is only going to turn up more and more energy. And a lot of people are going to want to go that direction. I think his name is real. I think he's in it. Um, I think that the Dan Lanning information is real to an extent, as in there's some interest potentially on both sides. Uh, but I think there are going to be more candidates to come. Because I think now you have an athletic director that comes in and he's going to give his ideas. He's okay doing things outside the box. And think about the last time out, he made that splash higher to go get Mike Leach at Mississippi State. And he also understands that maybe making a reach outside the footprint might not work because he brought Joe Moorhead in at Mississippi State as well. So be interested to see the direction that that goes. We'll have updates on that each and every Sunday. And like we talk about, we want to get you in, get you out, let you know what happened in the games what I saw in the games, how it went the way that it went, why it went the way that it went, and we'll recap them for you each and every week right here on the Cube Show podcast, a former sports talk radio show that is dead, that has now been turned into a college football podcast. Hopefully we expand this thing out past the SEC at some point, but it ain't easy jamming all these games in on Sunday morning, especially when you drive home from Starkville Saturday night and your kids want to hang out with you all day on Sunday. But we will be back next week, and we appreciate you guys listening. Please like, subscribe, rate, review all the podcasts wherever you listen. We're definitely appreciative of that and look forward to being back with you next week. The 
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.